This is Rheumatology Republic Podcast. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me. Do the names Hawkeye, Trapper or Major Hot Lips Houlihan resonate with you? Do they summon up a romantic notion of the 4077 MASH Army Hospital? Or maybe the idea of a medicine sans frontier is something you've toyed with in the back of your mind? Today, we're exploring the medical volunteerism industry and the work that a couple of different doctors do to significantly improve the lives of thousands of people each year. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from rheumatologist Dr. Rob Baum. But firstly, let's have a chat with Dr. Andrew Browning, obstetrician, gynecologist, and medical director of the Barbara May Foundation. He's a fistula surgeon in Africa and has been so for about the last 25 years. Although he doesn't love traveling all the time, he does get around. I just got back from Africa yesterday and I spent a week and a half in Tanzania, then a week in Ethiopia in the war-torn area of the northern part of Ethiopia in the desert. And then I've just had, had more recently a week in Juba. Last year, Dr. Browning was trying to get into that war-torn area. That war-torn area last year was completely cut off by the war. I was in Addis Ababa trying to get to our hospital there, but it was completely cut off by the fighting. The rebels were actually in about 20 kilometres away from our hospital and all the roads were blocked. And I was trying to get there, and the only way to get there would have taken a week going around the back of the the desert on camels and all sorts of things. And the troops were actually about 200 kilometres from Addis um, advancing on Addis Ababa. Anyway, the situation was getting worse. There was no way I could get to the hospital. Everything was blocked off and I had another 70 patients waiting for me in Tanzania. So I went to Tanzania and as soon as the rebels started to retreat and the road was open, I went back to Ethiopia to treat the patients in our hospital. Yeah, not your regular day as a health professional. Gone are the days when a red cross on your helmet would protect healthcare workers. So has Dr. Browning ever been in real danger? No, I don't think so. I don't do silly things. I mean, my aunt is the silly one. She's been in that area of Ethiopia since 1973 and I've been living in that desert area since 1989. And she's been regularly involved in wars and had been shot at and all sorts of things. And in this most recent war, she was the only person to go towards the front line to, to, to get the new, to take injured people back to our hospital and back to our clinic and so forth. I mean, everyone leaves. The World Food Program, UN, they all leave very, very quickly whenever there's conflict. But she was the only one supplying food to the hungry, the displaced, and was for some months after the war. Then the other bigger organizations started to slowly come back. But it was her organization that kept tens of thousands of people alive during the conflict. Yeah, a big call out to Valerie Browning, the inspiring desert-dwelling aunt whose service to healthcare sounds, to me at least, like a mega-sized version of the famous World War One heroes Simpson and his donkey. Yeah, a little bit, but uh, she's got a car rather than a donkey. Sort of the reason I went to Ethiopia in the first place. I'm a Christian first and always wanted to be a missionary doctor. And as a medical student, I was in mission hospital on the Rwandan border at the beginning of the genocide. And we had about 20,000 refugees arrive in the area of the hospital almost overnight. But I got involved with the Red Cross. Yeah, it was quite confronting. From a, a sheltered little boy that had grown up in Barrel and never really seen much of the world. But, I mean, it convinced me that this is how I should serve out my faith by helping people in this situation. So, as a junior doctor, RM01, he quit his job in Gosford and went over to work with his aunt Valerie in the desert of the Afar area of Ethiopia, which back then was very, very underserviced. One in 12 women were dying during their lifetime trying to have a baby. Child death rate was a third of children were dead before they were five. 
it was pretty pretty dire. But I visited a lady called Catherine Hamlin in the Fistula Hospital in Addis Ababa. That was back in 1996, and she offered me a job. And so that's the direction my life took from then. Dr. Browning has seen changes in the past couple of decades, a growing middle class in Ethiopia and Tanzania and Uganda. But he also said that what's constant is that there is still always people in great physical need and great emotional need and poverty and conflict and famine. And there are still numerous women needing fistula surgery and countless women who could be prevented from having fistula through better care during their pregnancy and labour. The typical story is that they're young, first or second baby, third baby, whatever, and they get into obstructed labour in their village, stay in labour for five, six, seven, ten days. If they survive, many of them die. They deliver a dead baby, usually unconscious by that time. And when they regain consciousness, they've got this huge fistula in their bladder and bowel, which is caused by ischemic necrosis by the, the pressure of the presenting part against the mother's pelvis. So all the tissues between, the tissues of the bladder, vagina, rectum, vagina, are all crushed and die. So they're left with a fistula, a large hole between the bladder, vagina, rectum, and vagina, which is on average three by three centimetres in diameter. Sometimes the whole of the vagina is destroyed. Sometimes the uterus is destroyed. Sometimes the urethra is destroyed. The whole bowel could be destroyed. A lot of damage, and so they really they just have a cloaca of just scar. I'm like clenching just thinking about what that must be like. I mean, this kind of injury changes a woman's world in immense ways. The majority are divorced, unfortunately. That's the typical story, but it's not always like that. A lot of the women are still loved and cared for by their husbands. But yes, they hide themselves away. 40% of these girls have been suicidal or attempted suicide with this injury. 100% of them are depressed. And when you treat them, they just turn back to be normal, happy citizens and you can get married and even 20% will go along to have a successful pregnancy. A successful pregnancy, which Dr. Browning's team at the Barbara May Foundation will deliver by caesarean. I mean, just last week in Juba, uh, I had a patient who got a fistula 35 years ago and the family saved up all the money to take it to Khartoum. She was operated on someone who clearly didn't know how to do fistula surgery and took all the, the money and she was left in a worse state. And so no money and still leaking urine. Her husband divorced her and she lived alone for those 32, 35 years, sorry. And uh, yeah, just trying to sell tea beside the road in the market, just eking out an existence for her. She was found by a mission and brought to us. And yeah, we did a good operation on her last week. And she's had her first night dry in bed with a catheter after 32, 35 years. And yeah, she said to me in the morning, I never thought in my life that I'd be dry again. It's just a, a glowing, glowing face as she was looking forward with hope to a, perhaps a brighter future. And the catheter will be there for another week, and we pray that she will be dry when the catheter is removed, which I think she will be. Yeah, so the impact of this injury is dramatic, and the, the impact of the treatment is probably even more so. But if this is nudging your thoughts to renew your passport and grab some chloroquine, you might want to first consider the possibility that medical volunteerism may create more problems than it fixes. The longer someone stays, the better. When you're there for a short term, the people don't know you, you don't know them, you don't know the culture, you don't know the way things work or don't work. And it's very tempting to go in and just see through a Western viewpoint of 
how things should be if you've got a Western eye. But when you've lived in the culture for some years, you understand why these things are that way. And they might be that way for very good reason. And so if you're there for a short term, you come in and say, oh, don't do this, do that. But the people there are very polite, very long-suffering and will put up with you for the time that you're there. Then as soon as you leave, they just go back to their normal ways. If you're there long-term and you've worked with them, you've sat with them, you've been sick with them, you've been through difficulties with them and you've stayed with them and you've befriended them and learned their ways, you gain their trust and respect and then you can really learn from each other and develop sort of a hybrid sort of thing of Western medicine and their medicine and their practices and our practices. Because you have to remember too that, I mean, the vast majority of medicine and its practices happens, is developed in the West. Almost nothing happens in the developing world where most of the illnesses occur. And so if you're transplanting Western-style medicine that's been studied in the Western context into a resource-poor area, it doesn't necessarily translate directly. You need to do some adjustments. Dr. Browning reckons he's still a junior compared to his auntie, Valerie. He's only lived in Ethiopia for 10 years with his family and another seven in Tanzania. But if you're still keen and have relevant specialisations, Dr. Browning said there are some spaces for those who might want to dabble in volunteerism. We have a need for obstetricians and gynaecologists and midwives, that's who we need. We have people come for one month at our shortest, which is a set program, and all the way up to you know, some people have come for seven, eight years, or if you want to stay longer like Val, 50 years. But it's not easy work. You know, advancing rebels aside, Dr. Browning has had a decent number of diseases common to Africa, including more than a few bouts of malaria and gastro more times than he cares to remember. And the bureaucracy of building and running a hospital, well, if you think red tape is bad in Australia, imagine doing it in a country sporadically racked by civil wars or corruption or supply chains that may have never existed. It takes a lot. So what keeps Dr. Browning going? Oh, the patients, of course. And it's when you get to know a patient and you develop a relationship with them, that's the, the real joy of medicine and seeing them through a difficult time of their life and seeing them coming out well in the end. And that's the real joy of medicine. And doing that in Africa with these beautiful women who have been through such tragic stories, you know, five days labor, dead baby, fistula into their bladder or bowel, ostracized, divorced, rejected. And to take them into a hospital and care for them and operate on them and see them start to smile again and start to blossom as they heal and they cured. Yeah, it's addictive. You never, ever get tired of that, and that's what keeps you going. Nowadays, Dr. Browning runs the Barbara May Foundation from Australia and travels to Africa several times a year. 250 Aussie dollars is all it costs for a pregnant woman to have all her ultrasound, blood tests, four antenatal clinic visits, and delivery within the Barbara May Foundation Hospital, and that's with a postnatal check and immunisations as well. For fistula patients, Dr. Browning says that the Barbara May Foundation will bring the woman to the hospital, operate, provide a three-week hospital stay, and then send them home, all for the big cost of $600. So that's $600, he says, to genuinely change someone's life. It's the purpose of the Barbara May Foundation to help women to deliver safely. But it's been estimated that we need to build about 2,000 obstetric units across Africa to prevent women dying and getting fistulas. So we've built four and we've got two more on the on the drawing board with the construction starting soon. So we're well on our way. We've only got 1,994 to go. But with everyone's help, I think, we should be able to do that. I mean, probably not just the Barbara May Foundation, but the world should be able to do that to ensure safe delivery and don't get injured. 
Now, if you're still packing the mosquito net, have a listen to rheumatologist Rob Baum. I think there's a lot of doctors who are of a similar mindset to me. And even from the time of medical school, we probably thought one day we might go into Africa or some third world situation. Seriously, I think that's in the minds of many, many, many doctors. Certainly it was in my year. But what I found when I actually tried to do it, and that came about because partly I was feeling probably a little bit burnt out, which is very common amongst doctors. And I thought, well, what could I do? Dr. Robert Baum is a rheumatologist and general physician who works in regional Gosford and Sydney City. All right. Well, now I'll do something that I feel is extremely important because as doctors, we like to feel that we're doing very important things. We don't always feel that we're doing such important things as we might. And so I looked into going, say, with Medicine Sans Frontier, which is on the minds of many doctors as a possibility of going to some far-flung place and using your medical skills to do a wonderful amounts of good. Looking into that, when I did a bit of more research, I found that unless you have a specific specialty, such as an anaesthetist or an obstetrician, you need to sign up for nine months. Now, signing up for nine months is an enormous commitment if you've got a family and children and you've got a practice, like what happens to your practice, you know, especially if you're in private practice. So Dr. Vaughan realised that firstly, the logistics for medical volunteerism were almost impossible. The other part of that equation is that if I go to Africa, I don't speak the language. I'm a rheumatologist, and it's not primarily rheumatology that they mainly need. They need obstetricians, anaesthetists, general surgeons, and various other doctors to do a lot of basic things because that's where the low-hanging fruit is, is with the basic things that are required that we take for granted here. And so I don't speak the language. I don't really have the skills required. The logistics of going there were terrible. The cost the health risks, the risk to your life sometimes. There's numbers of doctors and medical staff that are killed in foreign countries, you know, in war zones and various other places. The statistics are quite grim, actually. Last year, there were nearly 2,000 incidents of violence against healthcare workers in war-torn regions. Well, 2,000 that were reported anyway. 232 healthcare workers were killed and a bunch of others were just kidnapped. But to be fair, many places for medical volunteerism are not in the midst of a civil war, but the work may not be that exciting either. I met people, I met a cardiologist actually, who told me that he went there and he was giving vaccines because what's a cardiologist going to do besides occasionally diagnose a congenital heart disease and then what? And actually a niece of mine who's an occupational therapist went to Nepal and she was very disappointed because basically she was asked to transfer lists of names. That was it. So what I'm saying is what they don't need people generally to go there except in very specific circumstances and with specific skills Okay, so if they don't need a genuinely well-meaning Australian health professional, what do they need? What they need is funding so that they can train local people to do the work there because it's hugely underfunded. Medical services are hugely underfunded. 
So Dr. Baum went ahead and has actually just raised $1 million, which he contributes to foundations such as the Barbara May Foundation and the work of Fred Hollows. His charity is called Twice the Doctor because that's the impact you can have by working as a doctor in Australia and virtually volunteering by sending some of your salary to fund another doctor or two or more in Africa. He says that funneling money to a developing country can give you better bang for buck, much larger health impact than you'd ever get for your money in Australia, plus a juicy multiplier effect on benefits to the economy of the region. There's something called quality-adjusted life years. It's a concept that medical economic decision-makers use to fund programs. So in Australia, we pay about sixty to $70,000 for a quality. Is a quality means a quality-adjusted life year. And is you say, look, we've got this much money. Do we build a new hospital? Do we train more doctors? Do we train more nurses? Do we expand the indication for certain medications? So you decide what to do, what's the best way to use that money for the community. And could you reasonably as a human being say that, oh, no, a person in Australia is worth more than a person in Africa? I don't think you could say that. I think it'd be a bit abhorrent, really. Dr. Baum says that the Fred Hollows Foundation can provide significantly more quality-adjusted life years for very low cost. This is by either giving out antibiotics to prevent blindness by trachoma or training nurses to do a simple lid surgery to enable the blind to see. And, and so you can probably deliver a quality-adjusted life year with tarsal surgery in Ethiopia for 50 to $100, and in Australia, we spend fifty to $70,000 for a quality-adjusted life here. So if I want to double my impact as a doctor on this planet, I can donate $1,200, and I've doubled my impact as a doctor on this planet per year. That's an indictment on all of us, but <laughs> it's also an opportunity it is a real opportunity. And, and I see it actually as a great opportunity for mental health. Remember, I started this because I said I was feeling burnout. Yeah. So if I do a lot of good, that makes me feel good. I feel less burnt out. So everyone these days, uh, not everyone, there's so much anxiety and depression and so on and so forth. Well, imagine if you said, oh, well, at least I know I've done the work of a doctor this year. How would that make you feel on this planet? And so I'm just saying that there's this, this incredible opportunity to help the third world, to help your own mental health. And it's much easier these days than it used to be. Dr. Baum isn't the first person to suggest the best way a person can make a difference in this world is to get a high-paying job. There's a guy called Dr. Greg Lewis, and he did an analysis. He said, so if you want to do the most good as a doctor, what you know, specialty should you do? And the answer was, well, it doesn't matter that much. It's, what matters is that you give a fair bit of your income to third world causes. Now, this is something that your listeners might not want to hear. But anyway, he did an analysis of how much good doctors do. He came to the conclusion of about five or six qualities per year is what a doctor achieves. In other words, if I can make someone's arthritis 10% better and their quality of life went from, from 70% good to 80% good, 
So I've produced one tenth of a quali. To do that, it's not only my efforts, but also the pharmacy has to dispense the medication. We have to prescribe it. The government has to pay for it. There's a whole lot of things to produce extra healthcare. Twice the doctor collects small donations from numerous people, then bundles them up for a big value donation to, say, Fred Hollows Foundation. Now, this reduces the administrative costs of Fred Hollows Foundation and also provides big chunks of working capital for those teams abroad. For example, we work with the Barbara May Foundation and we have it from Andrew Browning directly that a hospital in Ethiopia, a maternity hospital, that does 2,600 deliveries in a year and sees a huge amount, I think it was 16,000 pre- and post-delivery visits and does fistula surgery. That runs for a to- on a budget of $500,000 a year. $500,000 to run an entire large hospital that no doubt saves a huge amount of lives, both, both mothers and babies. Imagine if this hospital wasn't there, what's hap- what would happen? And Ethiopia needs many more of these. But getting back to that figure, we've raised a million, right? So that would run this hospital for a couple of years, a whole hospital for a couple of years. Imagine what you get here for $500,000 if you got the services of two obstetricians, you'd be incredibly lucky for that price. You wouldn't get it. I plumbed Dr. Baum for information about Twice the Doctor. They have no administration costs because all of those overheads are covered by donations from the directors of the charity. And the directors are also fully volunteer, as is Dr. Baum. Twice the Doctor researched their partner charities really well to work out where they're going to make the most impact for each dollar donated and they establish long-term partnerships with a handful of medium-sized charities who all post their financial records publicly. I think that the doctors and and supporting people who have been associated with this have hopefully got the feedback that they are doing this incredible work, which is making such an incredible difference. And I believe and hope that they feel it every day, that as they see their patients, maybe if they're not having the best day, if they're having a patient who wasn't, say, 100% happy, if that's ever possible, then you can think, well, at least I know I'm also doing a lot of good somewhere else where it's enormously appreciated. Thanks for joining us today on Rheumatology Republic In Conversation podcast. We've just been speaking with rheumatologist Dr. Robert Baum from Twice the Doctor and Dr. Andrew Browning from the Barbara May Foundation. For the latest news and views about rheumatology, check out Rheumatology Republic magazine or our website www.rheuma.com.au. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and iTunes or wherever you find your favourite podcasts. I'm your host, Wendy John. Thanks for joining me.